Well, good morning again. Our reading today is from Mark 9, starting at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And then immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that's Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we are back in Mark. We went through the first half of Mark last year. And, uh, and then uh, in an effort to keep us hearing the whole counsel of God, we took a break from that, moved to another book for a little while, and we are back in Mark. And Lord willing, we will finish Mark uh, in the early summer. Uh, but Mark is pretty neatly divided in half. Um, so as we are moving into it, uh, we're really getting to the point of the Gospels. That, I don't mean to downplay, of course, everything Jesus has done in his ministry up to this point, but he keeps saying himself that the reason he came was to go to the cross. And so uh, we are, this back half of Mark uh, really brings that into focus. And uh, so as we turn to it, let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would teach us by your word this morning, that you would work your spirit in us uh, by that word. And we may be encouraged and strengthened and know more deeply, understand more deeply, have a deeper faith. In your son, 
So we ask in his name. Amen. Well, the standout line in this story is very clearly verse 24. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. We talk a lot about faith. Um, In English, the word belief and faith are kind of the same, and it's because English is just a you know, muddle of different <laughs> backgrounds. Uh, in Greek, they're the same word group. Um, and in Protestant circles in particular, we've talked about salvation by faith alone as being so important, right? I mean, you know, it's at least said that Luther called it the doctrine by which the church stands and falls. Uh, and rightly so. We've been concerned about it a lot. It, bizarrely, it, it's kind of morphed in the American context, and we think it You'll sometimes hear people say things like, well, as long as you believe in something. Um, okay, fair enough. I mean, I, I uh, having spent a long time in Boston, I'm a Boston sports fan, and every time one of those teams is competitive, they start putting up billboards that say, believe. Believe. Um, <laughs> that has not been this year. So, um, alas, we talk a lot about faith. So we need to get to the heart of what it is. I mean, if we're, if we're going to say, as a Protestant church in particular, that faith is so important, we need to really understand a lot more clearly what it really is. And so as we're looking for faith this morning, we will first hear about what faithlessness is. Then we will hear about what it means to grow in faith. And then third, we will hear about the one who is faithful. So we'll think first about faithlessness then growing in faith, and then the one who is faithful. As we get to thinking about what faithlessness means, it's really important that we understand the, the background here. And some of this will just be refresher since we've been away from Mark for, for a long time. But the first half of the book is, is about Jesus' early ministry in Galilee, for the most part. That's the northern part of Israel. Uh, it, it's far away from Jerusalem. It's, it's pretty rural, by and large. But Jesus is mostly in the wilderness and, and, uh, and in these small towns and teaching and healing and driving out demons and there's, you know, doing these amazing things. Um, but there's this, there's this theme that goes throughout the first half of the book. Of this kind of mystery around who is Jesus and people are trying to figure it out. And, um, and in fact, Jesus keeps telling the demons not to tell anybody. <laughs> he tells the humans, but uh, they, they, they talk anyway. Um, but at the end of chapter 8, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And it's, a, it's an important, tur- it's the turning point really of the book. Because Peter finally says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. The one that all of Israel's hopes have been hanging on. The one they've been longing for. And, uh, and Jesus accepts that title, but immediately starts talking about I'm really openly that he's going to be executed and will rise from the dead. And they don't get it. They just don't seem to understand, for one reason or another, why that's the case. Um, Then, at the start of chapter 9, as soon as he's made that confession, Jesus goes up on a mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they see... Jesus start to radiate with the glory of God. 
the unapproachable light of God. And then the darndest thing happens. The cloud that's associated with the Spirit throughout the Old Testament that, that marked God's presence, that, that shrouded that glory, shows up and envelops them. And then the voice of the Father, that you're my son. He remind, it's, 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 it's kind of a, it's as if the Father's reminding Jesus, you're my son, go complete the work. And from here on out, the rest of Mark will be heading towards Jerusalem. So the rest of Mark really only covers a few weeks. It's hard to say exactly, but uh, just a few weeks here as they're traveling down to Jerusalem and then the, the week that Jesus is in Jerusalem. So from here on out, this is a pretty short time frame. It's important to understand, but it's also important to see that they've come, that Jesus and Peter, James, and John have come down from that mountain, and that's where they walk into this argument. I mean, imagine the transition, right? <laughs> uh, imagine being Peter, James, and John, seeing this kind of like amazing thing, the glory of God revealed. And then you walk down and just step into this mess, right? There's all these arguments apparently going on. Uh, while they were up there, this, this father has shown up with his son who is demon-possessed, and the disciples that were down there, who had driven out demons under Jesus' authority, uh, can't do it. And undoubtedly, it mentions the scribes in passing. I mean, undoubtedly, they're accusing. That's their MO uh, throughout the Gospels. So there's this argument, and Jesus steps right into it. And, uh, and the Father steps out, and he tells him what's going on. And then in verse 19, Jesus says, uh, it's kind of, you know, I mean, it's just sort of an exclamation. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Jesus says something like this several times throughout the Gospels. It's, a, it's an echo of Moses. If you go back to Deuteronomy 32, the whole book, most of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' sort of farewell speech before he dies. And then as he ends the speech, he breaks into song. And most of the song is about God's faithfulness, but he stops and reflects. This is Deuteronomy 32. In verse 5, he calls them a crooked and twisted generation. Isn't that good? Verse 20, a faithless generation. You see, what had happened to the Exodus generation, the people who had come out of slavery, is that they had seen the plagues. They had seen how God had saved their firstborn while every firstborn in Egypt died. They had seen the Red Sea divided so they could walk across it in dry land and then consume Pharaoh's army. They had been to Mount Sinai and seen the glory of God revealed, that unapproachable light wrapped in the in the cloud. They had seen all those things. They had seen God provide for them every day with manna from heaven. They had seen God give them water from a rock. And yet, over and over and over again, when they were in the wilderness, they grumbled. Over and over and over again. And then worst of all, when they got to the edge of the promised land and God said, 
Remember, they had seen him do all these things. God said, go in, I'm with you. They balked. They couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. And that generation then had to wander for 40 years to die out so that their children could go into the promised land. You see, Jesus is echoing that. He's, he's saying, you're just like the Exodus generation. Don't you see? You're seeing amazing things that God is doing. And yet you don't have any faith. And the disciples are no better. That's a little scary, isn't it? Verses 20 and 29, after the exorcism actually happens, they go back to Jesus and they say, hey, why, why didn't that work? You know, back, back in chapter 6, he had authorized them to go out in his name and to cast out demons and do all these other things. They said, uh, yeah, yeah the, it, the trick didn't work. And Jesus tells them why. It's because they didn't pray. Now, let's be careful here. Jesus is not teaching them a different technique. Uh, like, oh yeah, you used to use this one formula. It's not magic, right? It's not like if they had this one incantation before, it was fine. Now they need to pray for a different type of solution. It's not technique that Jesus is getting at. And in fact, it, this is really clear if you look at the same story that, as Matthew tells it in Matthew 17. Because there, Jesus doesn't even mention prayer. He simply says they lacked faith. See, because prayer is the expression of faith. It is a turning to God for what we need. Prayer and faith are so intimately tied together. They are as faithless as the crowd. This helps us understand then a little bit of what faith is. You see, when we talk about faith, a lot of times we're, we're thinking about agreeing, you know, agreeing to statements. Are they true or false? <laughs> we're thinking of cognitive assent, right? Like, is this, is this thing true or not? And listen, the Christian faith does have propositions, right? It's, it's, it, there, are, there are truths to affirm. That is part of it. It is, it is bedrock. I mean, I, I, there's no doubt, right? But faith is more than that. It's more than simply saying, yes, I, I agree that this point is true, that point is true. It is about lived trust in God. It's about trust. It's personal. It's not just about the facts. It's about the person involved. Which is why, you know, there's no amount of empirical evidence, of course, that will ever bring anybody to faith. I mean, sometimes you'll hear this put out by, uh, uh, by atheist critics, right, that, well, you know, there's no empirical evidence of God. Well, you know, first off, it depends what you mean by evidence, um, as if, you know, the fact that there's something instead of nothing might not count. Um, but the point is, even if it were crystal clear, that would not make it faith. Because that would not mean trust in God. You see, you can have, you can see the facts for what they are, but they may make no difference on your life. On who or what you trust 
It's not faith. And, and more to the point, what becomes clear here, both with the, the disciples and, and probably the crowd as well, is that it's not that anybody is truly faithless in the sense that you don't have faith in anything. They're faithless in the sense that they don't have faith in God. They don't have faith in Jesus. But they have faith in something. Some instrumental God. Some God who is an end to achieving some other goal. That's what defined, I would say, the Exodus generation. It defines the crowds, right? They love Jesus' miracles. They love all the things that he's doing for them. Him, they're not so sure about. Do they trust him? And sadly, that's the case with the disciples as well. And let's be honest, sadly, that's the case in the church often enough. We agree with certain facts. That doesn't mean we actually trust God. Our functional trust, our functional faith, is in something else to give us comfort or control or approval. And we can go down the list, of course, you know, there's money, there's sex, there's power, there's politics. It can even be your career or your family. Or strangely and bizarrely enough, your Christian performance. See, in this way, there is a way that you can call yourself Christian, that you can know all the facts inside and out. You can know what's going on. You can even live a good life, a pretty upstanding life by most people's standards, and still be far away from God. Because God's only ever been an instrument for achieving something else. It's a little scary to think that that's possible. It is. To think that I, I, I could be here. I've always thought of myself as Christian, but never actually really trusted in God. Trusted in him for other things. Never trusted him. Do I trust what he's do, who he is? And so it's helpful then to see what happens here with Jesus as he's confronting this faithless generation to see somebody whose faith is growing in the midst of this. It's kind of remarkable, right? Because Jesus, has, you know, Jesus kind of calls out this faithless generation, but then he goes on to engage this father who's brought his boy, right? And he tells him more about what happens, you know, how long has this been going on. And then at the end of verse 22, he says, you know, if you can do anything, have compassion. If you can do anything, have compassion. And Jesus, he, did you notice that? Jesus grabs on to that conditional clause, right? <laughs> if you can. I used to think this was Jesus a little bit indignant. Like, if you can, come on now. Like, you've seen what I've done. If you can. No, no, no I, but, but then it dawned on me <laughs> as I was reading this. He doesn't get defensive. Instead, he calls out more faith, right? He says, look, all things are possible if you have faith. 
So I think actually when he says, if you can, he's not indignant. He's seeing the mark of faith, however small. That's there, right? Because this man isn't looking just for other ends. He's focused on Jesus and whether Jesus can actually, is actually who he says he is. What he's put himself for, if you can. So Jesus' tone is a little different there, I think. If, if you can, all right. All right. Well, get this, all things are possible. <laughs> if you trust in me, anything's possible. In fact, again, in that parallel account in Matthew, uh, this is where Jesus says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, which is like a tiny little seed, right? Um, if it's that small, even if it's that small, you can say to this mountain, move, and it'll move. And again, get the point here. Jesus is not saying, if you have faith, you can do whatever you want. you get superpowers. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, faith in me is the way to amazing things. His amazing things, not ours. Jesus isn't promising that you become some kind of superhero. He's promising that he will do amazing things in your life, through you. That's what he's promising. And this really is, what, and that's what calls out then this response, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's the lived experience of anybody who has faith in Jesus. It really, I mean, you couldn't find a better summary. I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> I believe, I do. But not as much as I'd like. It is, it brings into focus some important things to understand about faith. Let's just put it that way. One is that the most fundamental thing, the most important thing about faith is what you put your faith in. This is why the the kind of of politicians that's just generic, like, well, I have faith, or you hear athletes talk about their faith sometimes, uh, and, and they talk about the faith itself. Not everybody, but, you know, a lot of them will just sort of talk about how I'm a person of faith. That doesn't cut it. Good, you got faith in something. Well, everybody's got faith in something. Everybody's looking to something for approval, for comfort, for control. Everybody's got faith in something. The question is what you have faith in, right? Whether that can deliver, whether that delivers its promises. You can be, you know, there, there's lots of illustrations of this, right? I mean, you know, my favorite is, is ice, right? Like, like walking, on a, uh, walking on ice. So, Again, we lived in Boston for a long time, and uh, our church up there used to do this retreat every winter to this campground. They had all this like winter outdoor stuff you could do, which is great. It was really fun, and there was it was on this big it was on this big lake, and uh, almost every year we went, it was frozen solid. You know, it had been below freezing for weeks, and you know they knew it was fine. I was never comfortable walking out on that ice. I mean, I did a few times, but but I was always nervous standing out on that ice. Now, it was thick. It wasn't going anywhere. Um, But I was always nervous. But no matter how nervous I was, right, it was going to hold me up. Because the fact of the matter was the ice was thick. Now, there was one year 
where there had been a freak, you know, warm front the week before. And it still looked frozen. <laughs> but the camp director was like, don't go out on the ice. We, we can't guarantee that it is frozen through. It looked the same. I mean, I could have walked out on it. I could have been really confident, right? But I might have gone right in. And the point of the matter is, right, it's the thing that you trust that is the most important thing. Faith, as Christians talk about it, is not just faith generically, but faith in Jesus himself. That Jesus is the one who has taken our place. That Jesus is the one who's offered his life for ours. We talk about it, you know, with justification, our status with God, that it is all about what Jesus has done and nothing about what I've done. And it's also true in our sanctification. Although we're called into action in our sanctification, it is still about what Jesus has done and is doing in our lives by his spirit. Just as much. That's why faith and what we have especially faith in Jesus, is what matters. But there's also a subjective element to faith, too. This is actually what's scary when we, you know, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you're here and you're thinking about this stuff, I mean, this is what we're asking you to do is let go of faith in something else. And I, that's scary. But plenty of you who are Christians have experienced that sense that it is slipping away. Some of you I know have had crises of faith. Maybe some of you are in the middle of one. That's scary. Well, maybe, maybe you've noticed uh, a theme that I come back to a lot uh, is suffering. And it was, it's not, I haven't always talked about that a lot in ministry. Uh, I've come back to the, I come back to that a lot for a few reasons. And one of them is that the Bible is actually clear about suffering, that it's a normal part of the Christian experience. Um, and I think that's downplayed a lot in the church. Um, one is that that's, another is that that's an apologetic issue that's just really difficult, right? And one of, the re, one, of the, one of the challenges of sort of understanding that God is good is suffering. Uh, another is that I, I think Christians... Maybe suffering is too strong a word for it, but I think that as we become a more post-Christian society, we will become more marginalized. And maybe that's not big suffering, but it will become more costly to follow Jesus. But the other reason, and the reason I even bring it up here, is that suffering is an avenue for faith to grow. And this is a hard thing to realize. And that doesn't make suffering itself good. But that God uses the suffering we endure to make our faith grow. One of the old Puritans, a guy named Samuel Rutherford, used to say that grace grows best in winter. That it is through the difficulties that we actually have to confront those other things that we thought gave us comfort or control or approval. We actually have to rely on God. It's a difficult thing recognizing that our faith is subjective and that, I mean, we know it at some level, 
that there's a subjective side of us actually holding on. And I think if you're trying to think, maybe, maybe you find yourself in something of a crisis of faith, maybe kind of stagnant. Maybe you just want to continue to grow in it. There's a few things to remember. That faith grows first by professing what it is we believe. Again, not just so it's an exercise in, you know, cognitive <laughs> agreement <laughs> with God, but rather driving those deep truths, those fundamental things, home. And, you know, the church is not great at this. We, you know, we give a lot of lip service to the, th- the right things to believe, but then we spend all of our time thinking about particular issues. We spend so much more of our effort focused on maybe this particular moral question. If we want to be sophisticated about it, we'll call it a theology of X, Y, Z. Fair enough. I mean, we have to understand those things, but, we, but it is clear at some implicit level that we're so much more concerned to understand how I should act rightly than to be reminded again and again about the basic truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't mean to put the moral implications of the Bible at odds. I do mean to say, though, where is our focus? And if you want to strengthen your faith, it's got to be on Jesus Christ and him crucified. If other things are your main focus, and it's like, yeah, 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 that's right. (laughs) But really, right, what are we going to do about this? your faith will be weakened, not strengthened. You got to profess the faith to strengthen it. And then secondly, we've got to confess our weakness. It is the reason we need Jesus, right? And of course, confessing, you know, obviously there's repentance proper, confessing and repenting of particular sins, but it's also the general recognition, the thoroughgoing recognition that he is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. That my career, my family, my interests, the things that I like, (laughs) none of them are independent of God. All of it is in his hands. And then, of course, we need to pray. As we already noted, Jesus makes that connection between prayer and faith so clear that if we're not praying, we're not actually recognizing our need. And we're not digging, you know, Calvin calls prayer digging up all the blessings of the gospel. We're not digging up all those blessings of the truth about who God is. So professing our faith, confessing our need, and praying. And that's the way to build faith. It it, it isn't done overnight. (laughs) That's probably obvious, right? It is done over time. But those 
ways will build your faith. Because that is what the Bible tells us to do over and over and over and over again. That's how faith is built. And so we probably probably already alluded to this, right? That in the, in the face of this faithless generation and in the context of seeing at least one man growing in his faith, our focus has come onto the one who is faithful. It's Jesus. He's faithful to the task. He drives out the demon. This boy looks dead. Maybe he is dead. <laughs> and Jesus raises him up. Wouldn't be the first time. And then it's right on the heels of all this stuff about faith is that Jesus goes back a second time and says, look, guys, you want to understand what we're doing here? I'm going to Jerusalem to be executed and to rise from the dead. You want to know what faith looks like? That's what you got to do. You got to trust me to do that. We'll think a little bit more next week. In fact, it'll be, a, it'll be a theme throughout this whole second part of Mark about what all these different expectations of people had for Jesus as the Messiah. You know? But they didn't think it was that. But that is what Jesus came to do. That's, that's what Christmas was about, right? It was the incarnation. It was Jesus beginning this ministry that would lead to the cross, that would lead to his resurrection because Jesus is faithful to the end. When you and I were not faithful, he was. And one of these guys that went up on the mountain and came back down with Jesus, John, writes in 1 John, the epistle, he actually says this just a couple verses apart in 1 John 3. He says, look, Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. But then just a few verses later, he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And those are the same thing. See, because in his faithfulness, Jesus breaks the power of sin and destroys the lies of Satan. Because you remember the old lie, don't you? Of Satan and his minions, right? That God doesn't love you. God doesn't really want what's best for you. And God's answer to that is not rhetorical. No, 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 I really do. God's answer to the lies of Satan is to enter in. To experience the worst that this world has to offer. Not only that, but to die in our place for the sins we committed. God doesn't love you. How could that be? Because Jesus gave everything for you. And Satan is also an accuser. It's actually what Satan, you know, Satan means, is the accuser. But if Jesus has died for your sins, then he's got nothing on you. And maybe that's where you are Right now, you know, maybe this is the first time you're even thinking about this stuff. Maybe it's the thousandth time that you're thinking about this stuff. And listen, if you're weighed down with guilt and shame, the good news of Jesus is that he has set you free. By his blood, by giving of his life, 
the accuser has no claim on you. Nothing. Send him packing. And by his death, he has proved that God loves you. And if you are struggling with God's disposition toward you, maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe God doesn't really have what's best for me. Then remember what Jesus has done. If God didn't love you, would Jesus have come for you? If God didn't love you, would he have suffered for you? If God didn't love you, would he have laid down his life to pay for what you've done? No. But this is the riches of God's love. His faithfulness to the end is that he gave everything for you so that we can have faith in him. Our faith is rooted in the faithfulness of Jesus. It is the reason that we can be confident in the object of our faith. Because Jesus has laid down his life. So you may not know what tomorrow holds, but you know that it cannot be that God doesn't love you. It cannot be that he's abandoning you. Because he bought you, he purchased you with his own blood, by his own life. You see, because Jesus is faithful, we can always pray just like this man. I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray that. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. We know that you are good. We know that Jesus is faithful. We know that Satan has no claim on us because sin has been paid for. And we know that his lies cannot possibly be true. And yet that is not clear to all of us at a practical level. We struggle to believe. So remind us of the goodness of Jesus. Remind us of the depths of your love, of how much Jesus has given for us, so that we might know that your faithfulness is great, greater than we can imagine. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.